If you have your copy of God's Word, I want to encourage you to turn with us to Genesis chapter 16 as we continue to make our way through the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 16 as we try to answer this question, does God really see me? Does God really see me? This past week I was reading an article and within it it contained a stinging account by Frederick Douglass. I don't know if Frederick Douglass sounds familiar to you, but he was the former slave who became an abolitionist. And he shares this account that is in some ways stinging because it is about Christian slave masters being the worst. I want to read it to you from his journal. Bad as all slaveholders are, we seldom meet one destitute of every element of character commanding respect. My master was one of this rare sort. I do not know of one single noble act ever performed by him. The leading trait in his character was meanness. And if there were any other element in his nature, it was made subject to this. He was mean, and like most other mean men, he lacked the ability to control his meanness. In August 1832, my master attended a Methodist camp meeting held in the Bayside, Talbot County, and there experienced religion. I indulge in a faint hope that his conversion would lead him to emancipate his slaves, and that if he did not do this, it would at any rate make him more kind and humane. I was disappointed in both these respects. It neither made him to be humane to his slaves nor to emancipate them. If it had any effect on his character, it made him more cruel and hateful in all his ways. For I believe him to have been a much worse man after his conversion than before. Prior to his conversion, he relied upon his own depravity to shield and sustain him in his savage barbarity. But after his conversion, he found religious sanction and support for his slaveholding cruelty. He made the greatest pretensions to piety. His house was the house of prayer. He prayed morning, noon, and night. He very soon distinguished himself among his brethren and was soon made a class leader and exhorter. His activities in revivals was great, and he proved himself an instrument in the hands of the church in converting many souls. His house was the preacher's home. They used to take great pleasure in coming there to put up, for while he starved us, he stuffed us them man a man who appears to be more cruel after he professes to be a follower of christ than even before i think it's a reminder that on the outside looks can be deceiving what's really happening on the inward of our heart it is a reminder of the refrain we often repeat not all who profess faith actually possess faith But might we also ask in the midst of this, does God see that slave? Does God see Frederick Douglass? And the answer is absolutely he does. You see, oftentimes when we suffer or struggle, we start to wonder, God, do you really see me? Today's text reminds us that God does indeed see us. He sees the weak, the frail, the oppressed, the miserable, the sufferer, and the sinner. Beloved, he sees you this morning and genesis 16 says to us there's a god who sees and cares for the sufferer and the sinner again genesis 16 says to us this this day there's a god who sees and cares for the sufferer and the sinner there are four characters today in genesis 16 that we're going to look at i hope that you can identify with maybe at least one of them Hopefully you can see that no matter which character maybe you most resemble, that God cares for you and that he sees you. 
So let's look as we try to answer this question, does God really see me with our first character, the barren womb? Character number one, the barren womb. That word barren indicates unproductive or unfruitful. It's a hard word that often indicates even harsher realities behind it. And it's the very word that was used to depict Sarai when we were first introduced to her in Genesis chapter 11, verse 30. Sarai, who had no children. Can you imagine being identified or known or even introduced into a story by your greatest heartache? It's not lost on me that some in this room know that heartache too well. Others know barrenness by others' name, but nonetheless, you feel the pain and you know it. Because where those heart, heart hurts and heartaches can often drive us is the same place that it does Sarah. So listen to this again. Character number one, the barren womb. Pick up if you would, verse one of Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Again, we hear it right out of the outset, right? Had borne him no children. It's that epitaph on her life, that brand that seems to stick with her. And what makes it worse is five chapters now. We've been hearing about God's promise to bless her and her husband, Abram, and give them descendants as numerous as the sand of the seashore. And here she is five chapters later, still barren, still childless. Have you ever felt like God didn't keep his promises to you? Have you ever felt like God wasn't there for you? If so, Sarah understands. But her response to what she feels, it's not truth, but it's what it feels like to her. It's one that we do not want to follow, beloved. Listen to what happens beginning in verse 2. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Do you hear even made the sting, right? There, there's, some, there's honesty to that. It is indeed, as the Bible says, it's the Lord who opened or closes the womb. But I think in that we hear the hurt of Sarah. The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. And so she says, go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Lord, again, hearing these words, right? I mean, she's just struggling. Out of this depth, right, God seemingly has withheld what she most desires. The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now, what we know is, is that Sarah is in a place that I think sometimes we find ourselves. Will we wait on God or will we go our own way? Will we wait on God today? Whatever you're facing, are you willing to wait on God? Are you going to go your own way? You see, scholars tell us that from Babylon, which is there in northern modern-day Iraq, to Egypt. So this is kind of the landscape of which this setting takes place today, the known world, so to speak, at that time, much of it. We know that wealthier women often, especially wealthier wives, when they couldn't have children, they would take the, their, their maid or their servant or their slave and they would give them to their husband so that they would have children that, guess what, those children would become their own. So Sarah is in some way following the way of the world. Right, and I think it comes to this moment, maybe as women this morning, you need to ask this question. Think about what distinguishes godly women from women of the world. I think the answer is one thing, faith. 
What distinguishes you as a godly woman this morning from the rest of the women of the world or the job that where you work or the culture in which you live? It's faith. Why? Because good and bad come upon both, don't they? I mean, as, as the Word of God says, it rains on the just and the what? The unjust. And so maybe this morning you just need to contemplate, are you a woman that trusts in God this morning? Or would you identify more with the women of the world who trust in going their own way? And men, we can make this very same applications to our own hearts and lives. So Sarai, as we heard in the text, she begins to go our own way. Verse 3, so after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, takes Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and she gives her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And then this. And he, speaking of Abram, went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Right? I mean, the text tells us it's been 10 years. They've been waiting on the promises of God. I mean, like, seemingly, how can you wait any longer? Abram and Sarah are at a place of saying, you know what? We've waited on God long enough. It's time to go our own way. We need to do our own thing. And now, as we read the text, it says that when he goes into Hagar, she conceives. It's seemingly that final nail in the coffin for Sarah, so to speak. I mean, because all the previous years, there's been some wondering. Maybe it's Sarah. Maybe it's Abram. We don't necessarily know. But now that Hagar's come, the truth is known. And so what happens? Well, it says, the text says that Hagar begins to look with contempt or there on her mistress. She begins to look maybe down upon Sarai, looking at her. Maybe some or commentators note that maybe what wasn't appropriate now is she looks her eye to eye. She looks at her maybe in, in some way laughing or mocking, saying, I can do what you couldn't. Can you feel the sting of this text? The rawness, the hurt. Before we get to Sarah's response, I think there's a moment that sets God's grace in this text against our works. If Abram and Sarah are going to actually depend upon God's grace, that means they're going to have to wait for God and his timing to bring it about. But Hagar, she provides another way. She provides the way of works. Right now in your life, are you waiting and relying upon God's timing and his grace to bring about the answer that you are facing? Or have you found yourself looking to your own strength and your own ability to bring about the victory. Look what happens. Sarah says to Abram, verse 5, may the, Lord, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with content. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Sarah is angry right in this moment, and she begins to point her finger at Abram and saying, listen, it's you. You've brought this about. How could you do this? Right? And, and, and listen to her refrain right there. She says, may the wrong be done to me be on you. And then this statement here, may the Lord judge between you and me. Those are words in some way of a curse. I mean, Sarah is so deeply hurt in this moment. She is just spewing and attacking her husband. And he, in this moment, cowers back. And, and so she begins to, as the text says, deal harshly. We're going to wrestle with that some more in a moment as we come to Hagar. And Hagar flees. But I think in this moment, we might ought to pause before we rush past character number one, one in the barren womb and ask, do you know the struggle of Sarah's barrenness? Now, for some of you, again, you're going to know this in a different way, but I think the truth is for all of us, we could answer yes. Pastor Tim Keller notes this, that every culture has a definition of barrenness. 
Every culture says, unless you have that, you're nobody, you're nothing, you're a failure. And for Sarai's culture, it was having children. For ours, it's often being a star on the team or ranking up so far in business or having that house or driving that car, being able to go to that place in retirement or whatever it is. And the world says, unless you have that, you're a nothing, you're a nobody. And the truth is, we so much like the culture of scrapping and clawing to get that very thing, which indicates, beloved, you and I have the same heart dealings that everyone else does. It's our sinful heart that's enslaved to these sinful desires, enslaved to the lie that unless we have that or accomplish that, that we are, they're right, we are indeed a nobody or a nothing. And if that's the case, then you and I, beloved, listen, we are going to live a life where we can never rest. We'll never rest in the finished work of Christ because we'll think it's never worthwhile to wait upon the Lord. We'll always look for our own path. Sarah, this barren womb, warns each of us this morning, don't go your own way. So our first character, the barren womb, the next character is the fallen man. Listen to what happens here again. Let's retell the story in some way. Verse 2 through 4, And Sarah said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. You may be wondering, why are we calling Abram here the fallen man? Well, I think maybe three things stand out that gives some identification of his character in this scene. In some way, Abram is like Adam. He he does the very thing Adam does. See it there at the end of verse 2? He listened to what? The voice of Sarah. He listens to the voice of his wife. Now, as men, we might chuckle. Our husbands might chuckle. But I don't think Moses is chuckling, right? Depending on your translation, it may say, listen to the voice or obey the voice. And what's interesting about that phrase is it's used one other time in Genesis. You want to know where? Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. It was there that Adam listened to the voice of his wife Eve and they both walked into sin. Further proving that point, notice the sequence that's happening that echoes the sequence in the garden. Remember Eve, she saw that that fruit was good and she goes and she takes some and then she takes and she gives it to her husband and he partakes. That's the very thing that's happening here, right? I mean, Sarah looks and says, man, I can't have children. I can't wait on God anymore. So if I'm going to do it my own way, I'm going to go get it and I'm going to get Hagar and I'm going to take her and give her to Abram and he partakes. Moses is laboring to show us on both accounts that these are fallen men. And the third way I think that it shows that Abram is a fallen man is, guess what? In verse 6, he fails to protect Hagar and this unborn child. Abram just simply says, listen, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Now, maybe he thinks that a soft answer here is going to turn away Sarah's wrath. But in some ways, we have to acknowledge, man, he's cowering back, failing to protect his now wife, and his unborn child. Moses wants you and I to see that Abram is like Adam. He is a fallen man. And so are we. We're sinners. Now, for those of you who were with us last week, right, there may be some uncomfortableness with this text. It's especially disturbing because we spent so much time anchored in Genesis 15 and 6. It says, And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as what, church? 
righteousness. And we wrestled with that last week and walked through Romans 4 and all the beauty of it. And now we wonder in this moment, what kind of example is this father of our what? I mean, our faith, right? You know, we sing the song, father, what? Abraham had many sons. That's the guy. And I think that's the danger. If we approach the Bible thinking the only way that you get God's blessing is that you live perfectly enough, then we miss the entire point of why it was written. The Bible shows us that we're all like Abram. We're all like Sarah. We're fallen, sinful men and women. We aren't blessed, be- be- we aren't blessed by God because of how good we are. We're blessed by God because of how good He is. Hear that again. The story of Abram and Sarah says to us, we are not blessed by God because we are so good. Again, Abram wasn't counted to righteousness because he did all these good things. It was credited to him by faith. So when you come to the Bible, listen, beloved, you must realize we are not blessed because of how good we are. We are blessed because of how good God is. The, one, the story of the Bible is God coming and rescuing sinners like us and crediting Christ's perfect righteousness to us and our sinfulness is placed on Him. We see now the havoc wreaked by a barren woman and a fallen man who both refused to wait on God. We now come to our third character who's likely to make believers in this room squirm and the non-believers among us say, that's why I won't follow religion like that. Let's wrestle with our third character now, the mistreated slave. Because we would again, verse 1. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female servant. Now, depending upon your translation, right? Some of you, I'm assuming this morning, probably had the word maid there. Some of you may even have slave. In fact, in Genesis chapter 20, 21, verse 10, Sarah is going to call her. She says to her, she says, this slave woman. In fact, God himself in Genesis 21 and 13 refers to Hagar as the slave woman. The term indicates it's someone that's not merely subject to their mistress, but they actually belong to the other. They become the property of another. That's who Hagar is. She is a servant. She is in some way a slave. And because of that, they often were mistreated and abused. That's why Sarah tells Abram in verse 2 to go into her servant that she might have children. And Hagar becomes Abram's wife and he goes in and conceives and and they conceive. At this point, I think many would rightfully ask, what is fair about this? So you're telling me this woman of no control of her own. Again, we don't necessarily know. We know that she's an Egyptian, right? That, That the text indicates that. And so it's possible that when Abram and Sarah were in Egypt, right, and they came out with many slaves or many servants, that it was possible that's when Hagar gets attached to them. We don't necessarily know. But here she is, this servant, and, and right, being ruled over by this lady. And now this lady comes and by her own power and takes and makes her be her husband's wife. And then she's going to have children, but the children won't even be her own. And, man, we hear that and say, what? That's injustice. This isn't fair. And you would be right, but I, I want to be honest. Listen, it's not even finished yet. Look what happens here at the end of the text. Look at verse 6. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and Hagar fled from her. So the, the text here says that she, they dealt harshly. That word is the same word that's being used of the Israelites when they're in Egypt in slavery. They're being harshly dealt with. It's an indication of being having burden upon burden. And notice what happens is, is, is that Hagar, in response, she flees. 
it's often used in the Bible of someone escaping at the threat of even death. This is no idle moment. This anger and hatred is ripe with destruction. But I think in this moment, I mean, do we catch the irony of it? What the Egyptians will later do to the Israelites in oppressing them, Sarah, the Israelite, is doing now in oppressing this Egyptian. Again, remember Moses' audience. He writes to the people of Israel who have come out of Egypt and are in the wilderness. Can you imagine the irony of this moment laying there before them? But as I said earlier, this is messy. And I think it's one of the reasons why when people read the Bible and hear stories like this, they ask questions like, how could you follow a God or a religion that supports stuff like that? Have you ever heard that? People just wonder, like, and I think the answer is, listen, beloved, we've got to be honest. The Bible's transparent. And the heroes in this text, guess what? They all have holes in them. And the reminder to them is, guess what? Even the heroes of our faith, the greatest of our faith, even the one we may say, Father Abraham, he's still a sinner. But there's coming another. The story's not finished yet, beloved. There is coming a fourth character. There is coming one who sees the slave and will not mistreat her. And that introduces us to our fourth and last character, the seeing God. Because you would, beginning in verse 7 here of Genesis 16, the angel of the Lord found her. Right? Remember again, Hagar's been mistreated. She's ran fleeing. It says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, a spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? That is a question for each of us. Just pause for a moment. Contemplate that about your own life. It's not that God doesn't know. He's wanting Hagar to wrestle. He's wanting you and I to wrestle. Consider that today. Maybe something to take and chew with you throughout the rest of this afternoon and the week to come. Where have you come from and where are you going? She says, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, verse 9, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And then the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. This is this hope, right? I mean, notice again the text here. Let's walk just for a moment through it. It says that the angel of the Lord... This has created all kinds of questions. Again, if you have a study Bible, you're probably going to see some some commentaries, right? Some comments being made at the end there about verse 7. Who is this angel of the Lord? There's some question that maybe it's literally an angel who represents God and speaks on God's behalf. But one of the wrestling is, is that later in the text, Hagar begins to acknowledge that she's literally seen the Lord. And so whether he's a representative or as some believe, this is what's called a Christophany, that This is the pre-incarnate Christ prior to coming, right, being born there in Mary's womb. That this is Christ who's shown up on the scene. I think either way, this is a reminder. God is speaking and God is seeing the mistreated and abused and oppressed slave. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? Let that be a reminder to your soul. There is no one too small in this congregation this morning. No one too insignificant in this congregation this morning. That God doesn't see you and care for you. And so the angel of the Lord says to her again that she's to go and return back to Sarai. We might say, why? 
Well, verse 10 tells us because he's going to multiply her offspring, right? Hear that again. I'm going to multiply your offspring so that, he says, they cannot be numbered for multitude. Indeed, the name of the child has some reminder of this moment. He says, you'll name this child Ishmael. That means God hears. This child is going to serve Hagar as this continual reminder to you that God has done the very thing he said he would, he's doing in verse 11. And it says, you shall call his name Ishmael because, here's the reason why, church, the Lord has done what? He's listened to your affliction. Contemplate that for a moment. God hasn't missed Hagar's affliction. He's seen the long nights. He's heard her heartaches, tears. Let it be a reminder. He's seen yours. He hears your heart this morning. He sees and he's listening. He's noticed that. He has listened to your affliction. The God who sees the unseen Hagar also sees her unborn child. And he knows at this moment in that womb, though, what no one else knows. It's a boy. Might this be a reminder? This is a moment of tension that seems to threaten the very promises of God. And what do we see God not doing? He doesn't advocate for abortion. This is a threat to the very promises of God. And yet he doesn't move in that, in, to, to that step. This is an important reminder of just moments like this from the text of what is God's heart toward the least of these. Notice what he says about him in verse 12. He says that Ishmael shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. He says Ishmael is going to be a man that's constantly fighting. There's going to be constant disruption and fighting. So remember again, This was Abram and Sarai's plan. They thought they could circumvent the promises of God and everything would go well. But beloved, it always, just like with Adam and Eve, it's going to wreak havoc in our families and our lives. What a warning. Is God in the midst of this cease? But I think above all, the takeaway from this text begins to unfold in verse 13. Listen to what Hagar says about this God who sees her. Verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lehi-Roi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Hagar, like all of us, has weakness and frailty. Hagar has a moment where she feels like she has no value, no worth, nothing to give. But what transforms Hagar in this moment is that God sees her. And she says, listen, from now on, I- I'm going to refer to you as El Roe. You're the God who sees me when no one else seems to. When everyone else steps over me or around me or ignores me at the lunch table, when I walk down the hallway by myself, or when I sit alone in my home and I'm lonely at nights, you're the God who sees me. When I'm in the pit of despair, you're the God who sees me. When I'm in the midst of my sin, you're the God who sees me. When I'm depressed and thinking about ending it, you're the God who sees me. What a moment. And so Sarah, she obeys and she goes back. And the story says that she can see, or she gives birth to this son, Ishmael. 
And I think don't rush past this moment, right? Because we, we can hear and know our identity, that we know being bruised and hurt by others, you feel like you have no purpose again or no value. And into that moment walks the God who sees you. And he says, I love you, and I loved you even when that spouse walked out on you. God says, I love you even when that parent or parents were not there for you. I loved you even when that person was abusing you or taking advantage of you. I want you to know that I saw, I care, and I'm here. Can you imagine for some of you what that means to your soul? To the unbeliever, maybe you're here this morning. And part of what keeps you from coming to Christ is the oppression and suffering that you've experienced and stories just like this one in the Bible of, man, that's not a religion I want to be a part of. I hope today that the Lord's velvet hammer, as the prophet says, his word is like a hammer hitting the hard places of my heart. I pray that velvet hammer has fallen to say to you, there's a God who sees and cares for the sufferer and the sinner. And there's a God, listen, beloved, here's what must compel and urge you as a non-believer this morning. There's a God who simply just doesn't say, I see you. He says, I died for you. I died for you. Consider that in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your sin, God does not abandon you, hallelujah, but actually comes to your rescue. This is the beauty and the glory of Christ who has come to save and ransom us. I urge you this morning with all that is in me to contemplate the fact there's a God who sees you and cares for you and so loved you that he sent his only begotten son. That this day, if you would repent, if you would believe, you shall not perish, but have everlasting life. To the church, to the believers this morning, what hope despite despair? I think something that's so important in Genesis 16 is not simply what it does say, but what it doesn't say. You see, I think the temptation might be for you and I to assume that after Abram and Sarah have gone their own way, that God would say, you know what? You didn't believe me. You didn't trust me. Then good. Have it your way. I'm done with you all. I'll find someone else. It's not there. And I think, beloved, that's God to encourage our hearts for moments this week when we didn't read our Bibles like we should and we're despair. Despite our failed attempts to lead family worship, despite our, our attempts to share the gospel with family or friends and we cowered away in fear, despite the moments we put work or sports or whatever ahead of God, God doesn't say, I'm done with you. He still cares and loves and His promises remain. Does that not stir your heart? Love it, though, this is not a cheap grace. A cheap grace hears that and says, you know what, I, man, that is great news. And then you go right back out and you do the very same thing again this week. No, that's cheap grace. Beloved, this is amazing grace. It's grace that transforms sinners. It transforms church people. It moves and stirs our hearts. And in response to the fact that the God who sees and cares for us despite our sin and failures, even as believers, does that not urge you and I to go to this community and to the nations to let them know there's a God who sees and cares for them too? Does that not stir your heart to serve in little ways at cow days or on a Wednesday night 
or throughout the week, minister on your job site, just little ways to let people know that person on the side of the road or that downtrodden neighbor or that elderly saint amongst this body. Does that not urge you to say, God sees you? I want you to know that I see you too and I care for you and I'm here to serve and meet your needs because there was a God who saw and cared for me and he looked beyond my fault and he saw my need. That's the hope of the gospel. That's why we're going to stand and sing in a minute. Though our sins, they are many. His mercy, what church? It's more. It's going to be an anthem. It's going to come from deep within us. This text drives that very passion. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that though our sins are many, his mercy is more. Father, I thank you that to those who feel like the least of these in this congregation this morning, forgotten maybe by their own family or a spouse or those they've trusted and cared for most, that you are the God who sees them. Lord, I pray that would stir their hearts to contemplate not only did you see them, but you died for them. May you draw the unbeliever to you by the power of your spirit through your word. Father, I thank you that the church could hear this morning hope despite our frailty and failures. God doesn't give up on Abram and Sarah. And just because, Lord, of your faithful kindness to us in Christ, you don't give up on us either. Father, let us joyfully sing now that your mercy is more. And I pray that we'll contemplate all the ways in which your mercy is like a stream of water that flows into our lives and blesses us when we do not deserve it. Lord, let us humbly and joyfully and triumphantly sing and praise your name and go tell this congregation or this community and ultimately the nations, God, the nations, Lord, that they would know this good name. How can we stay here, Lord? Urge us forward, God. So many are dying, don't even know you, not even heard the name. God, would you stir little hearts now? Would you stir old hearts? Oh, God, that they'd be obedient and desiring in whatever way you might use to reach this community and whatever nations and people and tongue and languages for which you will send them. I pray this in hopes of what you will accomplish for the sake of your name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. We invite you to stand and sing.